Welcome back to the Genesis of Conception. My name is Rebecca David. Thank you very kindly for joining me today or tonight, whichever happens to apply for you. Now, this is a podcast in the space between the picket lines where we talk about all things pro-life, but we come at it from a strictly scientific, logical, and provable basis. Now, on our last episode, we discussed what abortions do and their aftermath. This week, we look at the actual, factual history of abortion. Now, I would like to open this week's podcast with some words that many people found inspiring. Quote, Don't be misled into thinking that you can fight a disease without killing the carrier, without destroying the bacillus. Do not think that you can fight racial tuberculosis without taking care to rid the nation of the carrier of that tuberculosis. This contamination will not subside. This poisoning of the nation will not end until the carrier has been banished from our midst. Now, if those words sound convincing, that was exactly the point. And with them and many like them, Adolf Hitler convinced the German people to send six million Jews and gypsies and homosexuals and many more to their extermination. Well, how about quote number two? Quote, to create a race of thoroughbreds requires the application of a stern and rigid policy of sterilization and segregation to that grade of population whose progeny is already tainted, or whose inheritance is such that objectionable traits may be transmitted to offspring, and to give certain dysgenic groups in our population their choice of segregation or sterilization. Now notice the many similarities between statement number one and statement number two. A clear and, to many, convincing-sounding argument for the extermination of at least 61 million people. This second quote did not come from Hitler. It came from Margaret Sanger, a.k.a. the matriarch of Planned Parenthood. Now, the story of how these words led to a modern-day America where a battle cry that is often heard is abortion on demand and without apology is a fascinating and dark and twisted and pivotal journey. And we're going to take it back as far back as 1550 B.C. Enter Egypt way back when, when according to BritannicaProCon.org, we get the description of the very first abortion method that we have written down proof of. It came from none other than the Egyptian medical text, Eber's Papyrus, which told Egyptians to vaginally insert plant fiber covered with honey and crushed dates to induce an abortion. Now, from there, abortion became accepted in both ancient Greece and ancient Rome. Aristotle was shockingly on board, saying, quote, When couples have children in excess, let abortion be procured before sense and life have begun. 
Then came the latter part of the Roman Empire, when abortion was not looked on as murder per se, but rather a crime against a husband who was losing out on a potential child. Narrowing things down to Western history specifically, we find the logic to be that it was not considered murder so long as it occurred before something called quickening, which was their term for the first detectable movement of the child in utero. Next up, the year 1821 and the state of Connecticut. They had the distinction of becoming the first state in the USA to criminalize abortion. Now, Connecticut banned the selling of an abortion-inducing inducing poison to women, what we would, in modern day, consider to be an incredibly early form of the abortion pill, which you can actually find out all about in the What Abortions Do episode of this series. But interestingly enough, Connecticut at that time did not punish the women who took the poison. That started in New York, of all places, in 1845 at which point the women held equal blame no matter if they induced the abortion before or after the quickening. Now this is where one Dr. Horatio Robinson Storer comes into the picture. He was considered to be an early pro-life advocate, and in the mid-1800s he single-handedly convinced the American Medical Association to join him in campaigning for the outlaw of abortion nationwide. Now, the result was that by the early 1900s, most states in the United States had banned abortions, and by 1965, most turned into all, with some exceptions varying by state. And that, my friends, that gets us to Margaret Sanger. Now, for our purposes, she made her debut in the story in 1911, which we know complements of liveaction.org. And she made her debut when she moved to New York and became a student of Thomas Robert Malthus, who was an incredibly vocal eugenicist. Now, brief interjection here to explain that eugenics, according to the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, is the practice or advocacy of controlled selective breeding of human populations as by sterilization to improve the population's genetic composition. So in layman's terms, it essentially means to breed out that which is undesirable, quote unquote, and breed in that which is desirable, quote unquote. Now, also of note, Eugenics means well-born and was actually coined by none other than Charles Darwin's cousin, one Sir Francis Galton. So looping back to what we know via liveaction.org, Sanger was super into this eugenics concept. She was quite active in all sorts of things, but to keep the focus on the topic at hand, we will look at when she opened her first abortion clinic. The year was 1916, the month October, and the location was New York. I kid you not. Now, she ended up being shut down within a month, but she kept pressing onward. You see, she held firmly to the beliefs that both birth control and eugenics were incredibly important. And in her mind's eye, they were inseparable. Now, thanks to ConcernedWomen.org, we know that this group, in her mind's eye, compliments of the training of her mentor, included the materially poor, the racially inferior, and the mentally incompetent. Her words, not my own. 
We know thanks to liveaction.org that her ultimate plan was set into action in 1921 when she founded something called the American Birth Control League, or ABCL. Now, another side note here regarding birth control specifically, Margaret Sanger was quoted as saying, it is nothing more or less than the facilitation of the process of weeding out the unfit and of preventing the birth of defectives or of those who will become defectives. So back to the ABCL. Sanger merged it with the Birth Control Clinic Research Bureau in 1939, and that is when it became what we now call Planned Parenthood. Now, eugenicists actually financed its creation, and pretty much everything else, from the ground up. Planned Parenthood's international work was actually originally housed in the offices of the Eugenics Society. The two organizations were intertwined for years with the specific purposes of weeding out those whom Sanger and those who she worked with considered to be undesirable, such as black people and Irish people and mentally deficient people, etc. Again, her words, not mine. Now, some interesting little side snippets from the continuation of Sanger's journey are as follows. First, she spoke at a Ku Klux Klan rally in 1926 in Silver Lakes, New Jersey. Second, she initiated the Negro Project, whose whole concept was weeding out those whom she called the unfit from the black population. She also played a large role in making forced sterilization common in some places, which led to over 60 thousand Americans being sterilized against their will, amongst whom were uh, the blind, the deaf, epileptics, the mentally retarded, the mentally ill, and people with low IQs. So essentially, she was an incredibly vile lady who left nothing but devastation in her wake. And just so that there is absolutely no confusion about her legacy, she was widely known to hate black people, and those with low IQs, and the Irish, and the disabled. Her goal in founding Planned Parenthood was the elimination of what she considered to be those people groups' defective traits from the population as a whole. And it has led to over 61 million deaths. But we are not done yet. So the question becomes, how did we get from Planned Parenthood in 1939 to abortion on demand and without apology in 2021? Well, that, my friends, that hinges on something called Roe versus Wade. So flash forward to 1973. Planned Parenthood is well underway with offering abortions to women in as many U.S. states as it was allowed and as far into each pregnancy as they were enabled to go. Then unstoppable force meets what was supposed to be an immovable object, but not so much. This is where the story of Norma McCorvey comes into the narrative. See, we know via BritannicaProcon.org that she was a Texas resident who was seeking an abortion, but at that time, very similar to the present day, it was illegal here, except in the case of saving the mother's life. Ergo, Planned Parenthood and their subsidiaries could not help McCorvey to end the life of her preborn child. 
So, on March 3rd of 1970, she decided to take her request to the higher courts under the pseudonym of Jane Roe. Now, she originally claimed rape and then later recanted, stating that she was hoping to better her odds. Now, here's where things get very, very interesting. She personally never got the abortion. She had a baby girl whom she gave up for adoption, and then later on down the road, she became a Christian and avidly pro-life in 1995, which I find super cool because that's my birth year, and she stayed as such, both a Christian and avidly pro-life, until her death. But her case had already set a precedent. Now, we know compliments of libertyuniversity.edu that the reason that Roe v. Wade matters so much is because of the wording within the final ruling. You see, the ultimate decision, which was written by one Justice Harriet Blackman, stated, quote, a state criminal abortion statute of the current Texas type that exempt that accepts it from criminality only a life-saving procedure on behalf of the mother without regard to pregnancy stage and without recognition of other interests involved um, is violative of the due process clause of the 14th Amendment, unquote. Now, he went on to elaborate that during the first six months of a pregnancy, a woman could have an abortion for any reason that she saw fit, including both gender selection and convenience. Now, as a very, very pivotal note here, fun fact for you, the entire concept behind the 14th Amendment is that you cannot unpeople people. And the reason why it was created was to help protect black people from slavery. I am not kidding on this. Go look it up. And now the amendment that was tailor created to protect life would be misused as an excuse to enable the slaughter of tens of millions more black people included. Now, as a direct result of Roe versus Wade, 46 out of the 50 states ended up having to essentially get rid of any abortion laws which they had on the books or amend them so that they offered virtually no protections for the pre-born. Now, after Roe versus Wade, there were a whole host of similar cases that came to the Supreme Court, such as Casey versus Planned Parenthood in 1992, Gonzalez versus Carhartt in 2007, and Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstead in 2016. Now, taken as a whole, they placed abortion outside the authorities that govern every single other medical procedure here in the United States. In many states where you could not give a minor an aspirin without parental consent, an abuser could now load up their victim, haul them to an abortion clinic to have the child within the uterus murdered, essentially removing the evidence of their crime, and no one was allowed to inform the parent. Where medical facilities require high levels of attention to things like cleanliness and infection prevention and admitting rights to hospitals if something were to go wrong, Abortion clinics and abortion clinics alone were exempt from or just plain out ignored those rules. Such laws made it obvious that abortion was not a medical procedure. It was something different and dark and wrong. And now we get to the final piece of the puzzle, which is first wave feminism versus the corruption of every incarnation since. 
Now, the early 1900s saw the establishment of first wave feminism with the concept of women deserving recognition under the law as the thinking and reasonable and intelligent human beings, which we are. And I wholeheartedly agree with this version. It was spearheaded by brilliant and brave women such as Susan B. Anthony, who was her generation's icon. And she fought tooth and nail for all women, the pre-born ones included, to be viewed as the incredible equals which God designed us to be. One of her most famous quotes is, Men, their rights, and nothing more. And women, their rights, and nothing less. Now, a lesser-known quote of hers was published in her publication and said that abortion is a horrible crime of child murder. Then came second-wave feminism in the 1960s with women such as feminist writer Betty Friedan and concepts like the wage gap and wanting vastly more access to contraception and other methods of birth control. Now, the second wave was elevated by the Roe v. Wade ruling. And the reasoning was basically, men can have sex and not get pregnant, so women should also be allowed to have sex and not be pregnant. It was all about the convenience, with no thought given to the humanity or the suffering of the child in the womb. And if you uh, want more proof that children in the womb do suffer during an abortion, go back and refer to my podcast episode on exactly that concept. Now, at this point, second wave feminism, that is, Hillary Clinton coined the saying, abortions should be safe, legal, and rare. Finally, third wave feminism and the rise of the oft-shouted abortions on demand and without apology, which began to spring up somewhere in the 1990s with faces such as Anita Hill. Now, this is also where we started hearing phrases such as intersectionality, which was coined by lawyer and theorist Kimberly Crenshaw. As Mary Lou Singleton, who was a midwife, a nurse practitioner, and a reproductive sovereignty activist, stated, quote, We need to go back to rallying for abortion on demand and without apology. It is absolutely mind-blowing to me that from the first leader of the first wave of feminism, which was a completely righteous cause, to the leaders of the third wave and everything that will be coming forward from there, those who call themselves modern-day feminists have completely forgotten or maybe simply do not care to include the not-yet-born women into the mix. I can safely say that the one who began it all, Susan B. Anthony, would be deeply ashamed if she could see how far we have fallen. So, my fellow pioneers, we come to the current state of a long and hideous and dark path that our nation has taken. If you don't feel completely grossed out after hearing about all of that, then you have not been listening. So I'm going to give a quick recap from my first podcast episode up until this one. The child in the womb is a unique human being that is scientifically provable. That child is a person. That person in the womb has a heartbeat, knows the mother's voice, feels pain, and has a future. Abortion erases that future in the silent scream, in a painful end that we consider too inhumane for even death row inmates to be subjected to. And yet, we are willing to subject our most helpless children to it. That was never what protecting women or the feminist movement was supposed to do. But 
now you know. That is the true and accurate history of abortion. Now to end out this bit, got a quote for you from the pro-life side of the aisle. Quote, Any country that accepts abortion is not teaching its people to love, but to use any violence to get what it wants. That, that, my friends, is a Mother Teresa original. And speaking of Mother Teresa, enter this week's book suggestion. It is called A Call to Mercy, Hearts to Love, and Hands to Serve. And it is a canonization of some of her most incredible stories and guidance. You can find it most easily on barnesandnoble.com and also Goodreads and I'm sure in a variety of other places as well. And there are both paperback and large print options currently available so far as I was able to find. Now this is the point where I would like to offer a word of encouragement. If you or someone you know is facing a crisis pregnancy or an unexpected one or, or one that maybe they don't feel equipped for, I have plenty of resources to guide you to. No judgment, only love and help. You can find me on social media as Proudly Pro-Life Gen Z Woman, unless you're looking for me on Facebook, in which case I am Bex David, which is B-E-X or Bravo Echo X-Ray for all you military types. Last name David, D-A-V-I-D, like the biblical king. And for the general populace, I would love to hear your thoughts and your agreements or your disagreements and any prayer requests or praises that you may have. Now, I'm really excited because next week, we're going to be breaking down men in the movement and combating uh, a lot of the things that I hear about why men shouldn't be in the movement. But for now, have a blessed and fantastic rest of your day. Please remember that you are loved and you are cherished and you are precious beyond measure to our Savior. And I challenge you to live like it is true, because it is. Until next time, let's continue to be pioneers in the space between the picket lines together. Thank you very kindly for joining me, and I'll see you next week.